The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. With it being spring break week, which is notoriously low, uh, we have taken a break from our verse-by-verse journey through the book of 1 Peter. We'll pick that back up next week. But last week we began a new series on the life of Joseph. And I'm going to preach part two of that um, series today. And then we will pick up the rest of the messages on Wednesday nights starting this week. And I'm going to uh, next Sunday preach again out of 1 Peter. But I hope this uh, compels more of you to attend on Wednesday nights because if you want to hear the rest of the messages, you're going to have to come on Wednesdays. And God has really been moving in a tremendous way. And so I pray that you'll make just uh, an effort, a special effort to, to come on Wednesdays. Well, there is a key doctrine found in the story of Joseph that we'll look, out through, look at throughout the series and we refer to this as what we just sang about, as a matter of fact. We call this the doctrine of divine providence. Remember last week I, I talked about, this comes from um, Mark Driscoll, the packaging of this truth. And he says that God works in two main ways. On, in one way, God works through his direct hand. We would call this um, working through miracles. This is direct intervention this would be in the Old Testament of uh, God parting the Red Sea. That's uh, direct intervention. God opening a barren womb. That would be direct intervention. Jesus healing the sick, opening blind eyes. That would be direct intervention. And how many believe at times that God still works through miracles, right? He still directly intervenes. We believe that. We're a church who believes in miracles, that those things still happen today. But I would tell you that just because you don't see that type of miracle every day in your life does not mean that God is not working because more often the way that we see God move is more subtly, more indirectly, and this is what we mean by divine providence. It has to do with God's sovereignty. And here's really what it boils down to. God is not indifferent towards us or toward the, towards the world. There are people who believe that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is within, believe that he created mankind, and then he just kind of left us unto ourselves. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. No, God is working in everything and through everyone to some degree. So that's what we mean when we talk about divine providence. It's God's working behind the scenes to bring about his will. How many can look back over your life and see that God has been setting things up for you? That is divine providence and it's a glorious truth that we see in the scriptures. So last Sunday we got into just the first several verses of chapter 37 in Genesis and um, the message kind of served as an introduction. Today we're going to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 37. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there with me or your device, find that on your phone, whatever it is, and go to Genesis 37 with me. And this is custom in our church in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Would you mind to stand for just a moment? Genesis 37 and verse 12. Now his brothers, Joseph's brothers, went to pasture 
their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, that's Jacob, Joseph's father, he said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flocks at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Now you think your family has issues. And they said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Friends, this right here is the providence of God that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. And Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Jacob tore his garments and he put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I want to look at two aspects of this message. I want to begin by drawing attention to the progression of sin that occurs in the life of Joseph, or his brothers, excuse me. And secondly, 
I want to look at God's hand of divine providence even in the midst of this rampant sin. So let's begin here with the progression of sin. The progression of sin. Last week we looked at the sin that was already in the house of Jacob. Jacob, you may remember, had four wives and 13 children. How many know that is a breeding ground for dysfunction? And to his detriment, Jacob, as we learned last week, favors one of those sons. And he doesn't hide his favoritism, but he declares his favoritism by giving and making Joseph this coat of many colors. And Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph really causes a lot of friction in the home. And this will happen if you favor one child over another. But I want us here to consider the progressive nature of sin. It's been said that sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. How many know that to be the case? Friends, that is so true. It's interesting how one sin leads to another. Do you think back to the story of David who looks out, David, uh, you remember, called a man after God's own heart. He looks out and he sees Bathsheba bathing and he begins to lust after her. And instead of repenting of the sin of lust, he moves from lust to the sin of adultery and sleeps with her, and not only that, he impregnates her. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Instead of repenting at this point, he tries to conceal his sin. Now he moves into the sin of murder. He has Bathsheba's husband killed in the front lines of battle. He sets this up to conceal what he's done. He continues to move in deception until he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. One sin leads to another. You can hear what this kind of thing does to David because in Psalm 37 and verse 1, he says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. Now watch what he says here, verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, he says, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up by the heat of summer. What's David saying here? He's saying that when we conceal our sin, when we don't confess our sin and turn from it, It eats at us, and it doesn't just affect our spirit. It does not even just affect our soul, our mind, will, and emotions. No, friends, it affects even our physical being. It eats us from the inside out. And so let's look now and consider the progressive nature of sin in the house of Jacob, particularly with the brothers. You have Jacob's favoritism that leads to the brother's envy. And then you have envy which leads to hatred and hatred which leads to violence and violence then to indifference and indifference to deception. This is radical sin. By the way, these are kind of the patriarchs of our faith. That gives us a little hope this morning, doesn't it? Let's just walk through this sin that is in their home. They start with the sin of envy. 
We saw last week that Joseph's brothers are envious of him because of the favoritism that Jacob is showing Joseph. Also, they're pretty upset because now not only does he have Jacob's favoritism, but Joseph has a call of God on his life that every one of the brothers would love to have. Now, envy may seem to you like a harmless sin, but can I just tell you that, friends, there are no harmless sins. We think, well, I haven't murdered anybody this week or I haven't gotten high this week or I've not committed adultery this week, so I'm doing pretty well. So good for you if those things are true about you. I hope those things are true about you. But if you've gossiped, if you've envied, if you've coveted, Friends, those are sin as well. This is really interesting. When we take a look at Romans 1, we find Paul in his writing about unrighteous men. He lists the sin of envy in with murder and God hating. Watch this, Romans 1, 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, covetousness, malice. They are all full of envy. There it is. And then the next word, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, and the list goes on and on. The point being that envy is not one of the little sins. There are no little sins. Sin is sin is sin. Let's just talk about envy for a moment. I love the way that John Piper brings out two elements of envy. Number one, he says that envy has an element of desire in it. Somebody has experienced an advantage or a benefit and you want that to happen to you. Now, that doesn't necessarily make you envious because that kind of desire is okay when you're drawn to imitate saintly people. In other words, if you see a dear sister in the Lord who has a great prayer life and you say, oh, I'd love to be able to pray like her. I want to emulate that in my life. That's not a bad type of envy. But there's another element, and this is what makes envy bad. It's the desire, this desire is tinged with resentment that it's going well for someone else and not for you. That's what makes it envy. So in other words, you go back to our example. You see somebody who's just a prayer warrior or seems to be super spiritual, and instead of saying, oh man, I'd love to be discipled by this person, I would love to emulate this person. You say, well, you know, if she had the upbringing I had, she wouldn't be near as spiritual. I don't know who she thinks she is, but I would be exactly, I'd be more spiritual than her if I had her good life or whatever. That's envy. You don't like what that other person has. You don't rejoice in their ability to do what they're doing or whatever it is. And this is what we see in Joseph's brothers. He has a call of God on their life, his life. He has the favoritism of his father, and they hate him for it. So even though Jacob does, in fact, favor Joseph, here's what I want you to understand. The brothers are still responsible for the sin of envy. Listen, as Christians, we don't play the blame game. We love to do this, don't we? Like when we sin, we love to give excuses and blame. What's well, my mother and father? Or it was because of the way I was raised. It was my brother, you know. Or if my boss was nicer. Or if this, listen, we all have excuses, right? We could all come up with excuses to justify our sin. But we're not going to be able to do that 
at judgment. We don't get to blame anybody else for our sin. We are responsible for our sin. Now, here's what happens. When we sin as Christians, we're to repent, right? We're to confess. We're to turn from those sins. Like as soon as sin is revealed in your heart, in your life, you turn from it, you confess it to the Lord, you confess it to another brother or sister in Christ, and you run from that sin. That's not what happens here. The sin of envy is not dealt with, and it leads, secondly, to hatred. Verse 4, this is from last week's text. It says, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now, does that sound like anybody's family reunion? Like you're not going to even talk to this person over here? This is tragic when this happens in families. Here's something I was thinking about as I, I studied this out. This type of hatred, this does not happen overnight. This has been boiling for quite a while. You know, some people are notorious for covering up their sin at home. They want their family to look like the perfect little happy middle class family, which by the way, that reality doesn't exist. We all have issues. Can I get a witness? We all have issues. But there's so often this sin that, that happens in the home that we would like just to protect maybe the family name. We just like to push it under the rug. So I just say if there is sin in your home, in your own life, or one of your family members, deal with it. Don't push it under the rug. I know it's easier, it seems easier to sweep those things under the carpet and say, well, we all love Jesus, we all go to church, we're okay, but those things will fester and they'll come back to bite you. Envy is not dealt with. Hatred is not dealt with. And number three, here's what happens. It turns to violence. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever is in is going to eventually come out. Verse 18 says, They saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. This is their brother. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. Let us throw him into the pits. And then they make this plan for cover-up. I mean, this is crazy. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what becomes of his dreams. Can I just make a side note here? When God puts something in your heart, the enemy will try to destroy that dream. But if it is from God, God will see too that it comes to pass. The brothers want to just kill this dream, but God sees otherwise. That's his hand of divine providence. Verse, where am I? Verse 19, 20, excuse me. Then we'll say a fierce animal has devoured him. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. Reuben, the oldest brother, talks them out of killing Joseph. So here's what they decide to do. Verse 23, when Joseph comes to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. Verse 24, and they took him, they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Sin, friends, has overtaken this home. There is hatred in the house. And the brothers are biding their time to get revenge. And so now, now Joseph has been sent, and this is crazy, he's been sent to check up on his brothers. 
The second youngest son sent to check up on them. What is this doing? Friends, this is adding fuel to the fire. And when he finds them, they are now about 64 miles away from home. Now that may not sound like a far distance unless you consider this is centuries, millennial ago. Like there are no vehicles. You can't hop on a jet plane, right? This is a long time ago. And this would be like you moving clear across country. Like you can't get home by vehicle. You can jump on a plane, but you can't get home by vehicle in just a day. No, it's going to take some time. So this is their opportunity. And here's what happened. The sins in their heart lead to action. Let me ask you this. How in the world can someone be willing to kill another family member? Does that not show the depravity of the human race? And guys, again, these are the patriarchs of our faith, all right? These are people that who, who we look up to. These are become men of great faith. But isn't it interesting that even the best of us are so depraved. This shows the human condition. It anticipates the need for a Savior. All of us fall short of the righteousness of God. So you have this desire to kill their brother. Reuben, the oldest brother, by God's providence, talks them out of killing Joseph, but there's still this willingness. I mean, this is crazy. You see the progression of sin. Sin that is not dealt with will lead us to do things that we could never imagine. Friends, sin is more dangerous than you realize. Joseph is now thrown into a pit, and then we see continued sin by his brothers. Number four, fourth sin is this, the sin of indifference. This blows my mind. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. Let me ask you this. Have you ever sinned or, or done something wrong or you know, or had something done to you and it's made you so sick that you cannot eat? Like you're just like, I'm not hungry. I've got to deal with this first. I've been there. Think of how far gone these brothers are. Just, just consider this for a moment. They have conspired to kill Joseph. They have mistreated him. They have thrown him into a pit, stripped him, and left him for dead. And they're about to sell him into slavery. And they sit down and they have a meal together as if nothing were wrong, as if this is just a beautiful day in the neighborhood, right? I mean, this is radical. And here is the danger of allowing sin to reign in your heart. Here's what happens. You can get so caught up in your sin. It can become so normal to you that you're not even convicted about it anymore. Like when you, let's just take lying. If you lie and you don't repent of that, lying becomes second nature to you. If you lust and you don't repent, lust becomes just second nature to you. To where you can just go on with life and, and the, the, the voice of the Holy Spirit in your heart becomes smaller and smaller and smaller to where you're not even convicted 
And you can come to church and you can lift your hands and you can read your Bible and you do all these things and not even be convicted. That's scary. It's gravely dangerous to let unrepented sin go on in your life. Hebrews 3.13, excuse me, says this, Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. In other words, don't put this off till tomorrow. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a great correlation between continued sin and a hardened heart. How many know we need multiple hearts? God wants our hearts to be soft and tender. The enemy wants us to have hardened hearts. And you know how you get that way? You stay away from church. And I get that from Hebrews. Exhort one another every day. That means we're to be in communication with, with each other. We're part of the means that God uses to keep that, that heart tender. It's not just coming to church, but it's being involved with other believers and allowing other Christians to speak into your life and encourage you and exhort you. But we must then repent of sin or our heart will become hardened. Judah has this great idea. Instead of killing Joseph, they could sell him as a slave, which might sound nice. Well, Judah says not to kill him, but he just wants to profit. What profit is it if we just kill him? Let's at least make some money off of him. I don't know this is, if this is much better, a much better solution. He sells him for 20 shekels of silver. They sell their own brother, not knowing what's going to become of him. Now the deed is done, and that moves us to the final sin I just want to bring out, and this is the sin of deception. Sin of deception. When we sin, see, we have two choices. We can repent, confess it, turn away from it, or we can cover up our sin. Joseph's brothers come up with this great plan to deceive their father. Now, I am told by many people, and my in-laws have been through this, there is nothing more tragic in life. There's nothing that will break you more, nothing that will hurt you more than losing a child. There's, there's nothing in this world that compares to the pain of losing a child. No parent ever expects to lose a child. I want you to just consider how far gone. This is what sin does. See, sin doesn't just hurt you. It'll cause you to hurt all the people around you just to save face. Think of this. Jacob is wondering where his beloved son Joseph is. And the brothers say, they bring back this robe covered in blood and say, oh, he's been devoured. And they watch day after day after day. They watch. This is not something you get over in a day or a week or ever. My brother-in-law passed away decades ago. And it's something my in-laws will never get over. You'll ever get over this. And they watch this father mourn day by day. He tears his clothes and he just mourns and they watch him because they would rather cover up their sin than come clean with their dad. And they watch his heart break in a million pieces. This is the road of sin. This is the road of sin. It will take you further than you want to go. It will make you pay more than you want to pay. I promise you. 
That's the progression of sin. Let's secondly talk about the providence of God. The providence of God. This is what's amazing about the Lord. Joseph does suffer tremendously at the hand of his brother's sin. And if it were not for the Lord, how many have said that a time or two in your life? If it were not for the Lord, how many are here today because of God's grace in your life? Every one of us. It would have cost him his life if it were not for the Lord. But thank God for his protection and providence. Remember that God's providence, when we talk about this, we're talking about God's working, in a sense, behind the scenes very subtly to bring about his will. Even when you can't see him, he's working. That's the promise we have when you, when you look to your left and you can't see him, to your right and he's nowhere to be found in front and behind and you cannot perceive the Lord. Friend, he is there, he is working, he will not leave you, he will not forsake you. There are times when you may feel that he's a million miles away, but friend, he is right there. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We see God's divine providence at least three times in the text. Found in verses 15 and 17, Jacob tells Joseph to go check on his brothers who've gone to Shechem to pasture the flock. And when Joseph arrives to Shechem, they're not there. Now understand, there's no cell phones. What did we do before cell phones? Do you ever think that? No texting, no email. It'd be tough to find them, right? I mean, you think Joseph is miles away from his home. And he's like, I've got to find my brothers. And he just has to pick a direction, right? And if he's wrong, that really stinks, all right? It's one thing if you're in a car. Think of this. Verse 15, a man found him, Joseph, right? By happenstance, right? Wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them in Dothan. So he's at this field. They're not there. And he just so happens to be approached by a man who just so happened, right, to overhear the, the, the brothers and their plans as to where they were going. Friends, that is not coincidence. That is divine providence. Never, never give credit to coincidence in your life. It is divine providence. Joseph's brothers have taken the family flocks north to to find a better pasture. Joseph is unable to find them, yet it just so happens that he strikes this conversation with this man and he finds them now. We see the divine providence a second time. Verse 24 says they they took Joseph, they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water at this point. Now, had there been water in this pit, it would have been so, this is a cistern. It would have been so high that Joseph would not have been able to escape. He would have died there. Friends, this is God's protection upon his life. This is divine provision divine providence. Then we go on to verse 28. Joseph sold to the Ishmaelites. He's taken to Egypt. He could have been sold to anybody, but watch what happens. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. Who is Potiphar? An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You see what's happening here? It looks uh, probably to Joseph at this point or the people watching from the outside in that this is just chaos 
that Joseph's dreams are being shattered, but actually God is using this to position him to the perfect place at the perfect time. God allows Joseph's brothers to kidnap him, sell him as a slave, and deceive Jacob for many years. And all of this wickedness, through it all, it's displeasing to the Lord, yet God means for these decisions to work for Joseph's ultimate good, God's ultimate glory. And through all of this, you know the end of the story. Joseph ends up in Egypt, and there he's made what is essentially the prime minister of Egypt. This is all a setup. And I want you to consider Joseph's attitude. Now, I don't know. We don't have recorded every thought that went through his mind or every word that he spoke. But by looking at his attitude towards his slavery and, and towards his brothers in the end and all of this, it seems that he did not rebel. It seems that he has this unshakable faith. Like he knew this dream was from God. And he knew that God was going to bring it to pass. It just seems though he must not understand what's happening He doesn't understand maybe why he's going through all these particular things, but he knows that God has a plan. And I want to encourage you today that you may not understand why you're going through what you're going through, but I want you to know God has a plan. Nothing in your life has caught him by surprise. We serve a sovereign God. If you look back even to the first quarter of this year, you might say, wow, Lord, I thought 2019 was going to be more promising for me, but I just want you to know it may look bleak, but God has a plan. And ultimately, the dream that God has put in Joseph's heart is about not just about Joseph, it's about saving a nation. He's positioning this man to save physically the very brothers who are persecuting him. They don't realize this, but the one whom they are persecuting has been spared to save their own lives. Does that point you to anything else in the Bible, any other story that you might be familiar with? It points us to Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Consider Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. And yet, like Joseph, but in a much greater way, he was rejected by his own sold for 30 pieces of silver, ultimately killed by very hateful people, the ones he came to die for. And yet through his suffering, his death and resurrection, we get salvation. Jesus trusted the Father through all of his suffering. Remember in the garden and he prays, Lord, God, if there be any other way, let it be. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. He's just submissive all the way to the cross. Now Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. Jesus humbled himself in coming into this world. And now God has again exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus on this earth was completely God and he was completely man. His glory in a sense was veiled. And he in humility, came not to to be served, but to serve. And he humbled himself in obedience all the way to the cross. And now he has been raised. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is the name above every name. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. See how Joseph points us to Jesus. Incredible. Let me, as the praise team comes, just give you three quick points of application. Number one, if you have sin in your life, Hear me, beloved, deal with it. 
Okay, I'm not just talking murder. I'm not talking just adultery. If you do those things, please repent of it. Okay? I'm talking about rebellion in your heart. I'm talking about unforgiveness. I'm talking about gossip. I'm talking about bitterness. I'm talking about complaining and grumbling. I'm talking about lying. I'm talking about envy. I'm talking about coveting, so on and so forth. Listen, Christ came and He is, if you're a Christian, if you're in Him, you're no longer bound to sin anymore. If you're outside of Christ, if you don't have a relationship with Him, if you've never been what the Bible calls born again, you can't live free of sin. Okay? It's, there's no moderation here. You, you don't say, well, you know what, I, I just lie once a week, so I'm okay. No, don't do it. It will take you further than you want to go. It will break you. So repent of it. And if you're here, you're not a Christian. Oh, I'd love to share how you can become a Christian. Number two, second point of application, trust in God's providence. I've said this, so I won't spend a long time here. I just want you to know that God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. If you are in Him, that, and here, here's what that means. It's not that your life is just total chaos right now and God's going to figure something out in the end. It means that even what you're going through right now, even what you're going through right now has a purpose. God will use it for His glory. Now, just a tremendous thought. I just want you to know, friend, you can trust Him. You can trust Him. You may not be able to figure out why you're going through what you're going through, but could, could it possibly be that God knows more than you? Right? Could it be that His ways are indeed above our ways, His thoughts higher than our thoughts? And finally, final point of application here is simply this. This is the goal of my preaching every week, is that your affections would be raised for Jesus Christ. And you think back to the story of Joseph and you think of these brothers who left him for dead, sold him into slavery, wanted him killed, wanted to profit off of his life, the torture, the torment that they put him through. And then in the end, Joseph saves their lives. Think of the gratitude. Think of the gratitude that they must have for Joseph in the end. They were petrified of him thinking he's going to retaliate, but... When he blesses them and takes care of them, they survive only because of Joseph. How much gratitude do they owe him? Well, friends, that pales in comparison. That pales into compar in comparison to what Christ has done for us. And I just want you to consider for a moment that every one of us are depraved. You look at Jacob and his sons and you think, oh, I would never do that. Left to yourself, yes, you would. Because we are all as depraved as those brothers apart from Jesus Christ. We all, apart from Jesus, are under the wrath of God with no hope, eternal damnation. That's the end. But the God that we rebelled against came, God the Son, came to us. And He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And He freely gave His life as a ransom for many. 
So we stand here today free from the bondage of sin. We stand here today able to worship our God and boldly go through the throne of grace because of what Christ has done and sing songs that are sweet aroma to heaven rather than a stench to heaven. All because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so here's what I'm asking. There are people all over America and all over the world this morning um, in, in, in different parts of the week. They'll be sitting in churches just doing their Christian duty by sitting down and going through the motions and even communion, which we're about to receive, they'll just take communion and say, okay, Jesus died, that's cute. They'll sing their little song and they'll go about their way. Friends, we owe him everything. We can never pay him back. It's not what I'm saying. But we owe him our lives. How could we not? Paul said in Galatians that he's essentially giving his life to the one that gave it all for him. It's not payback. Because day by day by day we're in further and we're further indebted to grace but friends we ought to be authentically grateful today for the sacrifice that Jesus has given thank you for listening if you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ or if you have questions about our church you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.